0: Now let's ask God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Our God and Father, we are grateful to stand in this sacred space today to proclaim your word to your people. We ask that you would give us ears to hear and willing hearts to obey. For Christ's sake we pray, amen. In Luke 19, verse 8, our Lord Jesus said that he came to save those who were lost. He came to save those who were lost. And by lost, Jesus didn't mean those who couldn't find their way through the busy winding streets of Jerusalem. No, he meant those who could find the, he, they couldn't find their way to heaven, to be with God the Father for all eternity. Those lost ones. Jesus' reference was to the spiritual lostness. Now, the secular humanist and atheist do not believe in the realm of the spirit. They only believe in the natural, material world. But we Christians, we believe that the human being is made up of at least three parts, body, mind, and soul or spirit. And we get this idea from the greatest command Jesus ever gave. He said, we humans are to what? Love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus didn't even have to mention the body because he understood that the body is merely the house in which these other faculties live, and they are the ones that animate the body. Jesus came to save souls. The soul is a part of you and I that will live forever somewhere. Either in heaven with God, the other saints, and the mighty angels, or in hell with Satan, other lost sinners and demons. But the way in which Jesus decided to go about saving souls is curious to me. He decided it was best to first call 12 men to follow him so that they could learn his ways of love and grace and mercy, forgiveness, kindness, compassion. And while they were learning those very important lessons, they would also learn the lesson of saving faith. These 12 disciples, except for Judas, eventually put their faith and hope in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, which reconciled them to God the Father. And then when Jesus told them that he would make them fishers of men, they said, yes, sir. And they followed him. In other words, Jesus told his original disciples that he would commission them to make other disciples. They were to enlist other men who would follow them as they followed Jesus. Last week, we celebrated the glorious resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what a time we had together, didn't we? If you weren't here, I'm sorry, you missed a great one. But as I prayed, asking the Lord what he would have me preach this Sunday, he took me to the Gospel of John, chapter 21. He said, I want you to continue where you left off last fall with the series on followership. You see, I believe we've made an end-all, be-all of leadership in our postmodern America, and even in the church, there's so much focus on leaders and leadership that we forget that Jesus came to call ordinary people to follow him. Christianity is not about leadership as much as it is about followership. And here in Chicagoland, we have witnessed in recent months the collapse of two titans in pastoral leadership. These two men started and grew their churches to be among the largest and most influential churches in the United States and even in the world. And both of them are now gone. They've been asked to resign in disgrace because of their behavior, which was unbecoming of pastoral ministry. These former titans in pastoral ministry had a titanic failure in what was to be their sunset years, and we should all be sad for them and their churches. We should learn whatever lessons we can. This is no time, this is a time to lament, no time to gloat. Now thousands of people have left these two churches, but thousands still remain. Recently, I had lunch with one of the longtime members from one of these two churches who remained in his church. When I asked him how, he, how and why he stayed, he said something profound, which illustrates my point here. He said, those who are weak in the faith leave the church angry, disillusioned, and hurt. And some not only left the church, he said, they left the church Altogether, their faith ruined. They've given up on God and his church. And that's the saddest of all. But those of us who are stronger in the faith, we, we stick around to help the church learn and grow through this trial, he said. Our faith is in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. He's done nothing wrong. And Jesus told us, he said... To expect human leaders to fail and to disappoint, but we are to keep our eyes on him. You see, Christ hasn't changed, and his mission and commission to us has not changed. Human leaders come and go. Some serve the Lord with integrity of heart and skillfulness of hands, but they may die and move on, or move on. Other leaders will fail miserably and are asked to resign, but true followers of Christ keep following Christ, loving and serving his bride until another leader is called, anointed, and appointed to serve. Human leadership is not the end-all, be-all of the Christian church. Christ is the end-all and be-all of his church. And he calls all to be his followers, to be faithful to him until the end as he is faithful to us. Now with that long introduction, come with me back to the Lake Galilee in Israel. The Apostle John calls it the Sea of Tiberias. It's been a few weeks since the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's made a few appearances to his disciples, and now John records for us the third appearance before his bodily ascension back to heaven. You remember, just after the resurrection, he sent word through his female disciples to the male disciples to meet him in Galilee. In fact, let me quote you the message from the angel of the Lord. Mark 16, verse 7, But go, tell the disciples, And Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now let's pick up the story in John's Gospel, chapter 21, verse 1. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathanael from Cana in Galilee, the son of Zebedee, or the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. And so they went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught zip, zilch, nothing. Of the original 12 disciples, Jesus chose to follow him. About seven of them were fishermen. Some Bible scholars speculate as to why he chose so many fishermen. Was it because he knew fishermen were tough, courageous, full of faith, loved to work together in teams? Think about it. Have you ever been deep sea fishing? I have, let me tell you. I went deep sea fishing the other day down in South Florida with my family it's a beautiful, sunny day like it is today, about 30 degrees warmer. And, but it was windy. The winds were kicking up the seas, five to eight foot waves. We had about 30 people on this big fishing boat. And the ride out to sea was bumpy because it was so windy. But this fisherman was tough, full of faith. By the time we dropped anchor and I started to drop my line to fish, I noticed something. My head started spinning. I tried to hang tough. I kept looking in the distant shoreline to maintain my equilibrium. My faith was strong, but guess what? I involuntarily fed the fish overboard. That's code word for puking. <laughs> had to go lay down and inside. But the real fisherman, our son Philip, didn't faze him a bit. And he was one of the few to catch a fish this big, and we had some fish fry. <laughs> he was the real fisherman. Meanwhile, I was puking my guts out. And feeding fish overboard and laying down inside, trying to recover. Listen, being a commercial fisherman is no joke, and that's what many of Jesus' original disciples were. Now, some scholars debate why these guys went back fishing after the resurrection. Some say they needed to earn a living and that's because that's what they knew. Others say they were filled with doubt and discouragement and went back to fishing instead of continuing to follow Jesus in his mission to become fishers of men. You can decide for yourself after your own study on this question but for our part this morning the more important point is to focus on Peter. Earlier Jesus had told Peter that he would be a key leader in the early church but Peter would only be a great leader if he remained a humble follower. And we know that he struggled with pride. Many leaders do, myself included. Not proud of that fact. The Bible is clear, though, that pride goes before a fall, and Peter had a great fall. He fell asleep during Jesus' critical hours of prayer on the eve of his crucifixion despite the desperate plea of our Lord for Peter to stay awake and pray with him. And then it was around a fire in the courtyard of the high priest where he lied to save his own skin after Jesus was arrested by denying he even knew the Lord. Oh, it was Judas who betrayed him. And it was Peter who denied he even knew him. But all the other disciples fled far away from him in fear of their own lives. The Bible says that when Peter uttered his third denial and the rooster crowed, he remembered the prophetic words of our Lord and he went out into the night and he wept bitterly. So no doubt there were those bitter tears of regret and disappointment in himself And great shame that he felt. And perhaps Peter had such deep shame about how he had failed the Lord. Maybe he thought to himself, how could he ever forgive me? How could I ever be worthy to follow him and to serve his church? And so maybe he did go back to fishing with these self-defeating, self-loathing thoughts. But Peter was a leader. And so did you notice what happened when he said, I'm going fishing? Verse 3. They all said what? We're going with you. Peter was a leader. The Bible points out a strange thing happened to these seasoned professional fishermen. It says that they had an utter Failure after a night, an entire night of fishing. And the verse 3 says, Then Jesus enters the scene from the lake shore. Verse 4 Jesus called out to the guys as if to taunt them Hey, friends, you haven't caught any fish all night, have you? To which they answered, <clears throat> No, no, nothing. And Jesus playing a little armchair Monday morning quarterback. You know the kind, right? Backseat driver. You ever had one of those in your car? Hey, fellas, why not cast your net on the right side of the boat this time? I bet you'll find some. Imagine that. Think about what they must have thought to themselves. Who is this yahoo? on the shore trying to tell us how to do our job. Now you know that these brothers were out there all night. You know how good they were at fishing, because that was their job. And you know good and well that they had cast that doggone net on every side of that boat probably five times that night, came up empty. And now some cat on the beach is going to try to tell them how to fish. But now look at what happened when they obeyed the stranger on the seashore. Verse 6. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Verse 7. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped up his outer garment around him and jumped into the water. Say whatever you want about Peter. You got to love this guy, right? He's got some spunk. Old school word. Haven't used it or heard it in a while, but I thought I'd try it on for size today. He's, got, he's spunky. Verse 8, the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about 100 yards out. When they landed, they saw a fire burning coals with fish on it, some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. And Simon Peter climbed into the boat, dragged the net ashore. It was full of, I love the detail here. It was full of large fish and somebody counted, 153. But even so, even with so many, the net was not torn. How many of you remember that wasn't the only time Jesus did a miracle like that? Another time before the crucifixion on the same lake, after the fishing all night, they were tired. They'd already given up. It was daybreak. And then Jesus challenged them to go back out into the deep and let down their nets one more time for a catch. And once again, it was Peter who started to resist the Lord with the complaint that they had been out all night and caught nothing. But Peter caught himself and said, all right, all right, we'll do it this time because you say so. <laughs> and the Bible says that they caught such a large number of fish that time that the nets began to break. And they had to call their partners over to help them bring in the miraculous catch of fish. What can we learn from these two accounts? When you and I have done all that we know how to do, in our own strength and in our own way, Try God's strength. Try God's way and His timing. When you've tried everything else and nothing's working, Jesus will meet you at the point of your failure. Yes, He will. Because your failure could be your back door to success. Some of you need to hear that this morning. Your failure could be the back door to your success. If Jesus is waiting at your back door. And you and I, if we're willing to do whatever he tells us to do and when he tells us to do it, we can have some success. I know a senior saint, a godly woman, many years ago she taught me this lesson. She said, delayed obedience is disobedience. Some of you have been delaying on acting on a word from God. Maybe it's in regard to your marriage. It might be in regard to your children. It might be in regard to your finances. It might be in regard to your service. God has spoken a word to you and you have delayed in your obedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Somebody needs to hear that today. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Verse 13 Jesus came, he took the bread, and he gave it to them, and he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let me ask you a question Do you think it was coincidence or happenstance that Jesus decided to create a fire? just after dawn to cook breakfast for his disciples? Think about it. On the night he was betrayed, he stayed up all night praying while his disciples fell asleep. And then after his arrest, in the wee hours of the morning, Peter denies him around a fire pit outside the courtyard with Jesus just steps away. But now, back in Galilee... They stay up all night fishing and catch nothing. They can stay up all night doing the work that they love to do. They just can't stay up to do the work of prayer when Jesus needed them. Until he shows up and tells them to cast the net one more time on the right side of the boat. Notice the, notice the detail doesn't say cast it on the other side of the boat he says cast it on the right side of the boat and then when they come to when they come close to Jesus and recognize who he is he's got a fire going for him fish and bread already roasted ready to eat they're tired they're cold they're hungry And he's there for them at the point of their need, not only to provide warmth and food, but also to serve them and to reinstate them into the ministry of followership and being on mission with him. Just as he did on the night he was betrayed. Remember, he took the bread and the cup and he served them. We call it the last supper. Now on the Sea of Galilee, on the seashore, he took the bread and he took the fish and he served them. You talk about servant leadership. Verse 15, when they had just finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Okay. Feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus gave him another command, then take care of my sheep. Third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And notice the next three words. Peter was hurt. Peter was hurt. He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus calmly said, if that's true, then feed my sheep. After Jesus served them, fed them, allowed them to warm up around the fire, he then turned to graciously challenged Peter publicly in front of all the others. You see, after all, Peter publicly denied Jesus, did he not? It is right for public sin to be publicly challenged and rebuked. It's a principle to draw from this passage. Private sin is privately rebuked. Public sin is publicly rebuked. Have you ever wondered why Jesus questioned Peter's love three times in a row with the same question? Could it be that each question correlated to each of Peter's three denials? And do you think our Lord was intentionally trying to hurt Peter? Maybe. The biblical proverb says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Jesus called Peter a friend. Verse 17 says that Peter was hurt because Jesus persisted in asking the same question a third time. What's the lesson here for us? Just because you and I may feel hurt by something someone says to us does not mean that person has sinned against us. It doesn't mean that person is a bad person. It doesn't necessarily mean that that person had even bad motives. None of that was true of Jesus. He was not a bad person. He didn't have bad motives. And he did not sin against Peter. Nonetheless, Peter, the Bible says, was hurt. So the next time you're feeling hurt by something someone says, here's what you do. Instead of questioning their love or their motive... Instead of getting angry and firing back hurtful words of your own, try this. Try this. While feeling hurt, try thinking and asking some other questions like this. Why am I feeling hurt right now? What's, what's, what's driving the hurt? What is the, the core of the pain, emotional pain I'm feeling based on the words that were spoken to me? Am I hurting because I was cut by the truth? Am I hurt because I don't want to deal with or face this truth right now? Am I hurting because I don't want to admit to this person that he or she is right? See, some truth hurts. Don't we all know that? But the same truth that hurts also heals and sets us what? Free. We should all remember that part. But sometimes we're so caught up in the hurt, we're not even asking whether what was said to us was true. Sometimes we're so hurt and we want to hurt back because hurt people hurt people. That we don't even stop to think, why am I hurting? Why does this hurt me? Why am I getting so upset? Is it true or is it not true? If it's not true, you don't need to be hurt by it. If it's true, take the wound as if it was from a friend. I'm not asking you. Some, some people say, I, the reason it's hurting is because I was still mad at you last from last week or last month or last year. And you haven't gotten over that hurt yet, so it's now hurt on top of hurt. Because you may be a person that it's hard to forgive, it's hard to let go, and so you you like to keep hurt festering in your soul for the next little thing, little annoyance, so that you can then rage. I'm not asking you to deny your feelings. No, feelings are the God-given nervous system of the soul. There's nothing wrong with feeling whatever hurt you feel. It's good to be in touch with your feelings. Just understand that God gave you a brain, too. Engage careful thought when nursing hurt feelings so that you will have the proper response. If some of you who follow me on Facebook know I post a lot of very controversial hot topic issues on my Facebook... And I pasted some recently, just a few days ago, with, about abortion. And, but the way I said what I said, you know, caused some of my friends on Facebook to, uh, you know, to really just question really what I was saying. And some were a little offended. And, and some were about to write me a long email. Until they went back and thought through what I was saying, how I was saying and who I was really quoting, I forgot to put what I was saying in quotes, so they thought those quotes were from me. But when we get in touch with our feelings and we engage our brains to think through why we're feeling the way we're feeling, engage careful thought when nursing hurt feelings so that you will have the proper response. That will make things better, not bitter. A few months ago, I went into surgery to repair my right knee, which had a torn meniscus. Now, imagine if you saw me limping a few days after my surgery, which many of you did, and you asked me, Pastor, what happened to you? Suppose I said to you, well, I went to see my doctor, and that SOB hurt me. He pulled three holes in my knee, cut away some of my meniscus cartilage, and had the nerd to charge me and my insurance $20,000. I'm going to sue his butt. And then he sent me home on crutches. Can you believe that? I already got my lawyer. I'm going to sue his butt and shut him down. Now, that's one way to look at it. That's one way to respond. Everything I said about the doctor is true of what he did to me, except the SOB part. But that's really not how I feel about what he did to me. I played tennis with our daughter Abigail this week, and I told her that my knee felt the strongest and best it's had since that surgery a few months ago. I am grateful for the wounds of my doctor and even for the scars that I have to prove that I went to see him. Because the Bible says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. I'm grateful for the wounds my doctor gave me and for his professional skills. We live in a world of super sensitive people who are, in my opinion, too easily offended about everything and everybody that does not agree with them or see things the way they see it. Don't be so easily offended. Easily offended people develop a victim mentality. And listen, Christ died to make you a victor, not a victim. Christ died to make you a victor, not a victim. There are too many Christians who have the victim mentality. And they are so easily upset and hurt over every little thing. When I was a little boy, I was picked on quite a bit at school because when I was a kid African-Americans didn't like me because I didn't walk like they did in school (laughs) and I didn't talk like they did and I didn't have all the clothes that they did because that's not how I was raised and white folks didn't like me because of the color of my skin and so when I came to this country in 1977 I heard the N-word for the first time and I saw Alex Haley's Roots on TV and I cried myself to sleep watching that series every year, wondering what kind of a country did my parents bring me to. And I was in no man's land because the people that looked like me didn't like me and the people that didn't look like me didn't like me and what was I to do? I could have been nursing hurts for the rest of my life because of the things that was said to me and the way I was treated. But God reminded me of some scripture that says, can a leopard change his spots? Can the Ethiopian change the color of his skin? It's a rhetorical question when the answer is no. Which means to say that God made us exactly who we are. He chose the parents and the ethnicity and the country in which we were going to be born and the language we were going to speak. God chose all of that for us. We had no choice in that manner. But now we can choose how we respond to people that don't treat us the way we ought to be treated. We can choose to forgive or we can choose to nurse hurt. We can choose to to love people and win them over, which is what God enabled and empowered me to do. Today, I have friends who are white and black. I have friends who are Hispanic and Asian. I have friends who are rich, poor, and middle class. I have friends who are Republican and Democrat and it doesn't bother me one bit. They think differently, they look differently, they act differently, a lot of them do. But I am who I am and I need to let them be free to be who they are. Now we share views, I share my views, they share that and we, we learn to have conversations and we learn to agree and disagree and, but the main thing is we learn to love and respect one another. Can you imagine if Peter didn't deal with this hurt properly? And you, you'll see what else he had, because Jesus drops some more heavy truth on him. But Peter eventually got it. And he, he responded in a way that was Christ-like, which enabled him to be the pastor and the bishop in the Jerusalem church that he later went on to be. So... As a follower of Christ, you cannot afford to be so super sensitive. You need to turn up the dial on your sensitivity meter because God will drop some truth on you that will hurt you. And your preacher will drop some truth on you that will hurt you. And your spouse and your children will speak some truth to you that will make you mad. But be careful. And be more thoughtful while nursing your hurt. And that will make your response better and not allow you to become bitter. If you only knew the way I was treated, I'd be the most bitterest person in America. If I told you all the stories in which the way I was treated when I was a little boy in school. But because I was nurtured in the word of God. And because I was loved unconditionally by my parents, that stuff rolled off my back. And it ought to roll off of your back. When you are strong in the Lord and in his strength and power, you're able to love and to forgive and to build relationships across and with people who formerly treated you very badly. That's possible. In Christ, it's possible. Verse 18, I tell you the truth, when you were hungry or when you were younger and you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you were old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you want to go, where you do not want to go. And Jesus said these things to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me follow me. And Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This is the one who leaned back against Jesus during the supper and said, Lord, who's going to betray you? That was the, that's John. And he's writing about himself, but he doesn't put his name in there. He just describes himself. Well, this is John who's writing this, uh, this gospel account. When Peter saw him, that's John, he says, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, mind your business. (laughs) That's my transliteration. Jesus said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You follow me. At some point after publicly challenging Peter around the fire with the other disciples, Jesus must have asked to speak to him in private. And so they got up and went for a walk along the lake shore probably. And as it turns out, John didn't take the hint that it was a private conversation. So he started trailing Jesus and Peter, maybe trying to scoop the conversation. And once again, Jesus dropped some heavy truth on Peter, predicting that he would most likely die a very painful death of unnatural causes. And as you can imagine, Peter didn't receive that truth too well, and neither would we, would we? Like an immature child, Peter began to look around to find someone to compare himself with. He's like, oh, man, I better not be the only one that Jesus is talking to like this. Peter was all shook up, and he needed some company because misery no. loves company. Do you remember when Jesus began to tell his disciples that he had to suffer and die? Do you remember how Peter reacted? Oh, no, you're not. You're never going to die. I won't let you. If it comes down to it, I'm going to die with you. Really? (laughs) Really, Peter? And you remember what Jesus said to him, Peter, shut up. That's Satan talking through you, not God. This is God's will for my life. And now Jesus is explaining God's will for Peter's life. And he's having a hard time accepting it because of how it's going to end. But again, that's because Peter is not looking at it from God's perspective. He, he still doesn't realize that suffering and death can and does glorify God. When it is God's will for it to happen. God's tradition tells us that, or the church tradition tells us that uh, Peter was crucified. But he requested to be crucified upside down because he felt unworthy to be crucified in the same way that our Lord Jesus was crucified, right side up. What's the lesson here for us? It is a sobering lesson. Number one, it is a sobering thing to follow Jesus. It is not an easy thing to follow Jesus. And it is most meaningful, most satisfying, most gratifying thing that you could ever do with your life is to follow Jesus. It requires faith. It requires obedience. It requires sacrifice. Most of all, it requires love. Unconditional love. Verse 19, when Jesus said to Peter, follow me. If you've seen your text, in your text, there's an exclamation mark there. There's a reason there's an exclamation mark there. Because in the Greek, it is an imperative, command. It is a present active imperative. That's the tense of the verb in the Greek, which means Peter, follow me and keep following me until I tell you otherwise, period. That's what Jesus is saying. And he says it to him two times within a few verses. Again, after Peter raises a question about John, Jesus stops, he looks him dead in the eye and says emphatically in verse 22, Peter, don't worry about him. You, Peter, you, follow me. Before he said, follow me. After Peter's looking around and pointing to John, talking about what's what's up with him? How about him? What what, what you got to say about him? Jesus says, you, Peter, you. Don't worry about him, You. Follow me. Let me ask you, are you following Jesus? Or are you looking around for John and Joanna and talking about what's up with them? How come they don't have it like I got it? How come they got it going on and I don't? How come, Lord, how come you blessed them? You haven't blessed me like that. Can you hear the Lord saying, hey, you, 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 <laughs> you, you, follow me. Keep your eyes locked in right here. Right here. Stop looking over there and over there. Follow me. Leadership is overrated. But let me tell you something. Followership, it's a thing with Jesus. Leadership may be overrated, but followership is a thing. And whether or not you have some leadership title in this church, in your house, in your job, you will always and forever be a follower of Jesus. If indeed you are following him and he has called you to follow him. Let's stand as we pray. Every head bowed, every eye closed, God's time of invitation. What has God spoken to you about today? Where are you in your journey, your spiritual journey with the Lord? Are you saved? Do you know for sure that you have a home in heaven and your sins forgiven? If not, today could be your day, your glorious day to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and to be saved at which point we'd want to talk to you about baptism and church membership. Help you understand what your spiritual gifts are and show you how you can serve the Lord and continue to grow in him. Maybe you've already been saved, you've already been baptized, but maybe you're looking for a church home. The doors of the church are open today and we would certainly invite you to meet with some of our deacons after the service. let them know what your intentions are maybe you're here today and you you have made a profession of faith you have been baptized maybe you are already a member of this church but you've taken your eyes off of Jesus maybe there's been something that has cut in on you as you've tried to follow the Lord it could be some besetting sin some attitude some disappointment some hurt that you've been experiencing and you've taken your eyes off of Christ and maybe you've gotten to the point where you're not even really serving him because you're too ashamed you're like Peter and some of the disciples you felt like you've let him down too many times and and so maybe you come late and you leave early and you're not engaged in the church because of your feeling of sinfulness and shame, I want you to know today that you do not have to walk around one more second, one more day under the weight of guilt and shame. That is the reason we leave this cross up on this stage so that you can be reminded that Jesus Christ died for your sin and mine. And he took upon himself all the sins that you've ever committed and ever will commit. And not only does he forgive us, oh, but he cleanses us from the shame. So there's forgiveness from the sin, and there's cleansing from the shame that accompanies sin. All of that is wrapped up in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so today, if that is where you are, trailing far behind the Lord and just barely in and out of his church, not committed to anything because of the weight of guilt and shame, today you can, right where you are, you can just breathe a sigh of relief and leave your guilt and shame at the cross. Just ask God to take it. Say, Lord, forgive me. I know I've asked you for forgiveness a hundred times, but would you forgive me one more time? And the answer is always be yes. You can never tire God with your request for forgiveness. And that's borne out in our gospel lessons today. Christ will come to where you are and meet you at the point of your failure. And he will prepare a barbecue fireplace for you. To come in from out of the cold and to get warmed up. And to, he will serve you and feed you and love on you. And then he's going to challenge you to follow him. To be done with guilt and shame and to hold your head up high and to walk closely behind him. And you go wherever he leads you, you go. Whatever he asks you to do, you do it. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Christ died to empower us to serve and to live free from guilt and shame, free from the slavery to sin. Today you can walk in freedom. The grace of God is able, is big enough. Oh God, thank you so much for your word to our hearts this morning. We ask that you would glorify yourself and help us to take your word, nail it to our hearts, and live it out in our lives until you come for Christ's sake. And all God's people said. Amen, Amen.